2: very much our idea people like me to get schemes where nobody realised it was a council estate or anything else it's just people where people live and not an obvious obviously different thing
3: that was peter deakins talking about the creation of social housing in post-war london It was a year ago this week that a terrible fire broke out in Grenfell Tower, North Kensington, leading to the deaths of 72 people and bringing to the fore vital questions about the nature of social housing in Britain. The historical context of the blaze is being explored in a BBC2 documentary entitled Before Grenfell, A Hidden History, which airs this Wednesday, the 13th of June at 9pm. One of the contributors to the programme is the architect Peter Deakins, who, back in the 1960s, was one of the original designers of the Lancaster West Estate, which would come to include Grenfell Tower. I visited Peter in his London home a few days ago to talk about his initial vision for the estate, his reactions to the fire, and his thoughts about the changing nature of social housing over the past half-century. So could I ask you, first of all, Peter, what exactly your role was in Grenfell Tower?
2: Grenfell Tower, I suppose, was my fault in many ways because I, purely by chance, I was involved. I I did the original plan for the whole area when the practice was commissioned to prepare a planning scheme for 24 acres or whatever it is of North Kensington. And with all of the experience of uh, low-cost housing that I'd had, I realised that one couldn't get access to multi-layer development of any scheme and get a lift uh, unless there was at least one tower where we could get subsidies for putting lifts in Uh, so that was put in the scheme to relate to some of the London County Council towers which were nearby but it provided lifts to get to the upper levels um, since all the rest of the flats had just walk up Without any lifts at all.
3: Grenfell Tower and the wider development, they weren't happening in isolation, were they? There was a, a, this was part of a general um, building program that was going on throughout the country at the time. Oh Is yes, that right?
2: yes, yes, very much. All local authorities had a quota to fill of providing social housing um, of some sort, called council housing, for want of a better phrase. Um, and this was part of Kensington's quota. It was just Kensington then because it was before it merged with Chelsea.
3: So this development that, that you're working on, I mean, obviously it was a building programme. I I right, there was also a kind of socials idea under, underpinning it as well. It wasn't just about building, it was also about creating a different kind of community.
2: Yeah, well, the the whole basis was to provide... Low cost housing for poor people, but in the way it was hoped it would work out, it was going to be much more than that by making something that would be accessible and usable by people outside the area as well, so that the whole thing would merge much more and be part of the whole neighborhood, just as if it had been there for. Hundred years or so, you know, and uh, not building a, a new council estate uh, in a little defined area that was on its own patch and not really accessible to other people. And purely by chance, it was because of the different levels in land between. Ladbrook Grove Station and Latimer Road Station, there was 18-foot difference. And it was clear to me that what was the ground level at one end would be 18 feet in here at the other end, so you could go right over the railway. And the hope, my original hope, was that it would give us the possibility of upgrading Latimer Road Station uh, so that it'd be naturally. Uh, an access point for anybody to go to the new shopping centre offices and a swimming pool uh, to replace the old swimming pool that was there and perform very naturally as part of the whole fabric of the area.
3: What kind of an area was this part of what is now North Kensington at the time that you started working on this
2: development. Yeah, it was a very run-down and neglected area. A lot of private landlords who had no, um, no stimulus to repair or replace the houses at all uh, because um, they weren't allowed to charge enough rent to, co- to cover the expense of upgrading it anyway and it was much easier just to let it lie around in a derelict condition to let to poor people and there was a lot of overcrowding as well so the general fabric of the building was pretty poor much of it had been condemned by the public health officer as being below standard you know so it was uh, pretty well condemned and would have been taken down anyway, whatever scheme we'd done.
3: Why was it in the end that not every aspect of your initial plan was realised in the the subsequent development?
2: Um, Barbican had a very difficult passage um, to get built, and there were great arguments in the city. Um, And a lot of people wanted it all to be officers and... Other people thought that you should bring people back to live in the city, and that's the group who won, but it was a long struggle. And clearly, I suppose, in retrospect, I can see that it could have been a struggle like that in North Kensington at the time, but people find change very difficult. And firstly, London Transport immediately decided that the idea of building over the railway line instead of seeing it as an opportunity of upgrading the station and linking it to a new centre of offices and shopping, very much like White City, has become subsequently or to link to the swimming pool, which is there is a new swimming pool there. So all the things were built, but not in the way that are intended, because I think people couldn't see the point really in london transport wanted to charge us on our clients over flying rights you know so they'd get some rental for us to build across the lines rather than seeing it as an opportunity to upgrade the station um and beyond that the borough engineer uh couldn't see the point of incorporating all the roads in the scheme although this is something i very much wanted to do to diminish the impact of traffic and cars going through anywhere and you know to absorb parking in a, in a, in a way that was easily easy to live with and easy to build to a degree anyway um But again the borough engineer couldn't see this at all and insisted that the whole site revert to a, a piece of land with a red line around it saying this is a council estate, you know, so the whole basis of my ideas went really. So I no longer stayed with the scheme for better or worse.
3: But despite that, the subsequent development, which, which included Grenfell Tower, was that still a significant step up on the accommodation the people who'd been living there would have had? Oh, one?
2: yeah, I think so, because, um, in fact, there were bigger, greater standards in the accommodation and my previous one-time boss at, when I was working on Barbican, Joe Chamberlain had been on the Park and Morris Committee and upgraded all the sizes of the flats, and so they are reasonably generous flats and much better than had been built elsewhere. And uh, yes, yeah, so it was an upgrading of standards, and everybody had their own bathroom and their own kitchen, which previously people probably shared. A, you know, a, a, a gas ring on a on a landing or something and a shared the bathroom in the loo, which was like the whole of the west end of London at one time, probably, well, the whole of central London, really. Um, so standards were much higher and the flats were much bigger.
3: And the council estates or um, social housing estates such as one Grenfell Tower was on, they, they were created with a lot of optimism and ideas of progress, but... Yes. So how did they eventually get this reputation? I don't know if you think it's fair or not, as being quite negative places, places people may not have wanted to live.
2: Well, yeah, I think maintenance is always one of the things, you know, that everybody assumes as soon as you've got a new building, nothing needs to be done to it for the next hundred years, and life's not like that. As soon as you build something new and the rain gets at it, it starts weathering very sometimes quickly and sometimes very slowly and hopefully you're doing something that's going to happen very slowly so there's maintenance um and there are lots of opinions about people in local authorities for managing management purposes putting difficult tenants all together so that are easier to manage um, but very often with disastrous results because it was very much our idea, people like me, to get schemes where nobody realized it was a council estate or anything else. It's just people where people live and not an obvious, obviously different thing. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people resent paying taxes to give accommodation to people who don't deserve it. You might say, you know, yeah, there are so many social attitudes about the whole thing, and um, I say a resentment of taxes and, and carrying responsibility, but, you know, one only has to think 50% of the population is below average, isn't it, really? you know, and you can't do anything about that and it's not their fault and it's not anybody's brilliance. If they're not like that, it's just chance. Um, So everybody has a responsibility, I think. and I think, you know, a lot of schemes we did were very much on Scandinavian ideas, really. Um, And... uh, Perhaps many of the Scandinavian social attitudes are perhaps a bit more palatable to many people than lots of attitudes that are not quite so kind, maybe, for want of a better word.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
3: So do you feel that the spirit that motivated these new developments and motivated people like you, did that change? Did that dissipate in subsequent decades?
2: Um, There are two or three things involved in that, but um, with social housing and government schemes anyway and with a lot of the clients were very different, you know, different authorities... And some were, we thought, much more enlightened than others. And some boroughs provided very good schemes and very thoughtful and very concerned. Um, And it's easier to work for people like that, for architects like me, because you've got a client who's sympathetic to what you're trying to do anyway, uh, whereas the opposite... uh, I'm not against developers, my father was one, you know, in fact, so I come from the building background very much anyway. Um, But it is not their job to worry (laughs) about the... how the people they're catering for fit into any social fabric, really. It's just not their problem and they shouldn't be expected to be able to solve these things, really. And I do know of some very sad situations around, or very difficult situations around, where um, people have been landed into all sorts of, you know, residents of various buildings around have been landed in all sorts of difficult situations because of changing attitudes and changing clients. Uh, for whatever reason mainly political of course and because of what people are trying to do not because they're nasty people or anything like that but they've got different objectives and attitudes and yeah it was much much easier for people like me to work for um, doing that sort of scheme Who, who had People on the client body who are sympathetic as well to the sort of things we were trying to do. Um, and that's largely disappeared, I'm afraid.
3: Taking the story up to the present, what were your reactions when you first heard the news about this terrible fire that happened at Grenfell?
2: Um, one of my sons sent me a text with a photograph of the whole thing and a... a comments about, you know, the failures of postmodern buildings and things like that, and he had no idea it was anything to do with me, and I looked at it, and I thought, my God, you know, it's Lancaster Road. Um, was utter horror, you know. Um, Of course, it should never have been like that, really. I mean, it's become more clear from... What everybody's saying that the cladding was an utter disaster. Um, Oddly enough, I had been asked by someone, Constantine Gross, who had been uh, employed by the group who were doing the upgrading as a uh, social. Um, can't think of a phrase, but anyway, he was taking films of the whole area and talking to the residents about the whole upgrade. So I went around with him, the tower, just before it was relet after it had been done up two years ago, three years ago, whatever, three years, I suppose. Um, and I had no idea, you know, I just couldn't imagine that such a thing could be possible, that it, that could be allowed to happen because in days when we were first working on it, architects took a great deal of responsibility and were in charge of the whole thing. And they instructed everybody else what to do. And of course, the responsibility fell on our head, totally if it went wrong. So it's a great stimulus to try and make sure it doesn't, although. You know, buildings are tricky and accidents happen and things can go wrong. Um, but nothing like this. And the standards were so much higher at the time. You know, and there's been an argument uh, recently about half-hour fire doors and they weren't specified high enough and only last, lasted for a quarter of an hour. Well when we designed things they were supposed to be an hour fire door and half hour fire doors with bedrooms inside and bedrooms were supposed to be near to the entrance to the flat so you could get out you know you'd be protected in the bedroom or you could get out quite quickly you know out of the entrance door because the most likely place for a fire is of course the kitchen you know um, so standards, yeah, are totally different and there seems to have been a, a great lesson of the way everything's done. So do you,
3: do you think that one of the lessons from the Grenfell Tower fire is that building regulations need to be strengthened?
2: Um, I'm a great believer in the cock-up theory of history, really, that anything can go wrong it will particularly on the building site, I'm sure of that. But um, yes, I think things have got too lax really and it's too casual and lower standards altogether. And, you know, we have quantity surveyors always told us that the higher the ceilings or the bigger the floor plan, the more money it costs because they would do it on a, square footage basis or a cubic footage basis. So, of course, it would according to those figures. Um, So, there's always that pressure to make things smaller. And standards, those sort of space standards were taken away some years ago. And I think the uh, GLA has brought back some standards which are back to Parker morris which is what my old barbican boss helped to set up six years ago you know so um, in some ways it's getting back to better standards but not in terms of building you know whether builders should be in charge of the whole building process instead of architects as it used to be Um, I don't know, it's very difficult. A lot of architects got sued by clients for the smallest thing. so a client could end up getting their fees to the architect paid for them out of damages, you know, in the insurance company, which is pretty outrageous, really. That's why so many architects are limited liability companies these days, I'm not. but um, You know, lucky touch wood, don't do so much these days anyway.
3: Do you think that on a broader level that social housing nowadays and housing in general, could we look back to the 70s, say, and the 60s as to learn some lessons about the future of social housing and how we can improve it?
2: Um, Well, the great thing about those times, um, and I was on the board of a very big housing association for about 14 years, South London Family Housing Association, was set up. Um, part of shelter and so on to, as its name implies, to deliberately provide housing for families because most builders provide housing, you know, one and two bedroom flats because they're easiest to sell or to let. And families find it very difficult on the basis that a bigger flat costs more as the quantity surveyor says, to pay more for the bigger flat, you know. So it is very difficult. And I think what was interesting to me about the 50s, 60s and 70s, um, although I suppose in the 70s in the background there were economic problems in the whole country which were beginning to intrude on the whole thing, for us, you know, as professionals working and It was a great time. They were great times because everything was looking into new ways of doing things and very adventurous and, yeah, really great times to work, you know, and if you're at all interested in inventing things and doing things better, yeah, wonderful. You know, I really enjoyed doing all of these things, great times. and yeah, maybe they've gone. And
3: to what extent do you feel that housing and the built environment can be a force for general societal progress?
2: Um, I'm an architect, so I think what I and my profession does is very important, and I'm not sure how true that is, and a lot of people are not aware at all of what's around them, although... I like to think that without people realizing it, the quality of their environment does matter a lot. I love living by Battersea Park and having nice trees that have just gone over blossoming a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's wonderful here. And I've not wanted to move really over 50 years, been here and not felt, you know, it's great. Um, so, yeah, I think it does matter. And for me, as an architect, I think all architects ought to push for those sort of standards for anything they're doing for anybody. Um, some do, and some don't.
3: That was Peter Deakin's. And as I mentioned earlier, before Grenville, a hidden history, airs this Wednesday, the thirteenth of June, at nine p.m. on BBC Two and it will be available on BBC iPlayer afterwards. And that's about it for today's episode, but we'll be back on Thursday when we're going to be talking about the home front in the First World War.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook?